Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. some way reflects or departs from historical realities. Does that make sense? Sort of what, what, what I'm going to talk about today? So if we go to the next uh, slide, there's a wonderful book written by a colleague of mine called Jeffrey Shamp. He teaches at Rutgers and he wrote a book a number of years ago called Adventures in Yiddishland. Uh, and he, at some point in that book, talks about this little text called Say It in Yiddish. And you can see uh, through this uh, PowerPoint presentation here that this was a book uh, for travelers, right? Oftentimes before we had Google Translate, right? Nowadays my kids or your grandchildren or great-grandchildren might use Google Translate if they're traveling, but you know, before uh, when we didn't have those things, people used to buy these books where they, when they were traveling abroad so that they could be understood when they wanted to order a meal or get a taxi or if God forbid something happened to them and they needed to go see a doctor or if they were going to passport control or if they needed their luggage taken up to their room. And why is this book interesting? Why is it what we might call a curiosity, what others might call a fetish? Yeah. Well, assuming that it's published 1950 or after, mm -hmm. which it kind of looks like, where would this be useful? Excellent, excellent question. So this book was published in 1958 in the United States, and you put your finger on the problem. Now why, or not the problem, the question. This book became famous, and it was sold. People bought this book when it was published after 19, in 1958 and after in its republications. But what's even more interesting is what happened to it relatively recently. That the, before he won the Pulitzer Prize, the, the, the American Jewish author Michael Chabon wrote in uh, an essay in the Smithsonian Museum magazine about having discovered this phrase book, this book Yiddish for Travelers. And he said that in discovering this text and in reading this text, he thought about it as the saddest book he had ever come across. And the Yiddish world exploded. People were very, very upset with it. They said that he had to be excommunicated, or they didn't know what he was talking about. And of course, as a responsible author, he had to actually um, respond to this. And one of the things that my colleague uh, Chandler really started to ask about her is what does this book mean? Why was Chabin's response, why did it infuriate so many people, and what you know, what, what, what was its intention at the time? Because as you correctly pointed out, in 1958, normally when you publish a phrase book for travelers, it's, it exists because there's a destination for people to go to. And Chabin correctly asked, where in 1958 would you have needed a phrase book for travelers? And what comes about in this question is really that sometimes things are produced not necessarily for their utilitarian value, but for their symbolic value. And perhaps this is a book, at least on the reception end, certainly not by the people who wrote it or produced it, because it came out of a long-standing family of Yiddish linguists with a very distinguished um, academic pedigree. But in terms of how we might see it, let's say lay people looking at this book, this book might have represented the world that could have been, that might have been, that once had been, and that one day perhaps could be in the future. So it becomes not only, it does, it's, not, it's not like Chabin says, this book of sadness, but perhaps this book of possibilities, of alternative futures and of desires. And since language is portable, since homeland is portable, it you know, implies a certain possibility of a different type of future. So when we talk about Yiddishland today, the question that I began with, uh, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions of why certain people might be attracted to things Yiddish nowadays. And what do they mean by Yiddish land? Yiddish, of course, simply means Jewish. So when you talk about Yiddish land, you're also talking about Jewish land. 
And of course, now in 2019, some of you might correctly say, well, there already is a Jewish land, and that land is called Israel. But of course, for those attracted to Yiddish or interested in Yiddish historically, that might not necessarily be the type of Jewish land that they're talking about, right? Yes? I think of this in terms of wherever you travel, at least way back then, you'd look for the blue box at every checkout. Oh, right. If you saw the blue box, the, the JNF blue box, you knew you could use the Yiddish to find out a little bit, Mama Lushen, how a little bit about somebody. It didn't matter what country you were in. So, so possibly, sort of Yiddish as this global language, as this universal language, as this shorthand. Yeah. Yeah, how much Yiddish is, is spoken in, in Israel? Uh, there's actually a... a, a, a this is a longer story, and we can sort of cover this maybe in the question period, but certainly there was always a lot of Yiddish in Israel. Uh, it was not necessarily treated well on the level of the authorities or in terms of public culture, but we know that even at the highest levels of the Israeli government, there were, Israeli, that there were Yiddish speakers. We know that Yiddish was used in homes, and I would say nowadays it has moved from being the language of immigrants and refugees to a fairly important language of the Haredi uh, community. So it's become, you know, Yiddish is growing. Yiddish is not shrinking uh, in Israel. But really the question, yes ma'am? Way back when, yeah. if Israel had decided to have Yiddish as its language instead of Hebrew, mm -hmm. this would still be a popular book now. Well indeed, but this is the problem. This is why it's sad, because of course no one would question in 1958 a phrase book being produced that said, say it in Hebrew. It would be entirely logical as a consumer item for someone to produce a book called Say It in Hebrew and for people to purchase it as something that they might use. The question is, in purchasing this book, sort of the commercialization of nostalgia, what does that actually mean as an American cultural object? Yeah, you have your hand up. Well, I was curious, 1958, um, our parents and some guys came back from the war. Right. It's a big war that was supposed to exterminate the Jews. By 1958, the housing from the American Union, and I'm sure they were rebuilding in Europe, I'm thinking it was a hopeful thing. Yes, a hopeful Jews, thing. Jews do a lot of hopeful things. Yeah, so this might be an exercise in anticip an anticipatory exercise. Right. So I think that you know we've opened this up, and what I what I see is it's great to have such a an audience that likes to contribute. Maybe what I'll do is I'll get through some of the things that I want to introduce, and then we'll leave lots of time for questions, just so that we have a, a certain flow to what we're doing. Does that, does that sound workable? Yeah. So what what we have here, I think, when we're talking about Yiddishland that's tied to a specific language called Yiddish, are maybe three things historically. One is an idea of a diasporic nationalism, right? A, a community that lives in the diaspora but is nationally Jewish. And we could call that cultural autonomy, we could call that diaspora nationalist. That's one possibility we think about uh, when we think of Yiddishland. The other possibility may be something where we use Yiddish as the shorthand for Jewish humanism, or for Yiddishkeit, for sort of goodness, for progressive values, for sort of acting out in the world universally but based on uh, what informs one Jewishly that comes from the Jewish tradition. So we can think of that. And then we can also think of different other avenues of Yiddish lands that might be of the more political variety. For instance, the Yiddish-speaking communities in the Soviet Union and the satellite countries of the Soviet Union that are trying to create a new type of Jew and a new type of Jewish culture through Yiddish that itself might be a type of Yiddish land. And we're going to look at all of those. So if you could just hit the slide for a second. Uh, in the case of Yiddish, we might say, by looking at this picture here, that Yiddish um, is homeland for many of its speakers. And here we see um, a map of a globe with Yidd the word Yiddish imprinted upon it. And if we look at this poem, what does it say at the bottom? And I'll translate for those of us who are um, uh, Yiddish challenged. Von Vilna bis Buenos Aires, von Tel Aviv bis New York, hat Arois gespreit, neis von Deures, das Kinigreich von Yiddischen Wald. The kingdom of the Yiddish world has spread out, what a miracle, from Vilna, of course, uh, in pre-war Poland, to Buenos Aires, for Tel from Tel Aviv to New York. So this idea that Yiddish isn't only a language, but it's a kingdom, a place that one inhabits. And then if one looks at David Roski's Shtetlbuch that he edited um, uh, no, several decades ago, he quotes an anonymous person who says that Yiddishland was a kingdom stretching from Amsterdam to Shklov to Strasbourg to Odessa. Geographically, it was among the largest empires 
in the history of Europe and lasted for hundreds of years, all without a king or without a parliament, without an army or a civil service. In fact, it only existed in the minds and mouths of its speakers. It was a land of language made up only of words. Or if we look in 1913 to an essay called In a Yiddish Medina, in a Yiddish state, by a political activist, he describes the following. I spent my childhood in an entirely Yiddish environment. Had I not known that Jews live in diaspora, I wouldn't have answered that I lived in diaspora. I would have answered I live in a Yiddish country, for there was so little sense of us being in exile. It seemed as though we Jews did not live in exile among the Russians, but the Russians were living in exile among us. So this is an amazing way of thinking about cultural experience and about cultural autonomy. All of which to say, the point that I'm trying to make here, is that language for many of these speakers and these people who believe in Yiddishland, uh, language, not land, not political control, are the constitutive elements of identity, of culture, and we might even say in certain cases of political culture. And this, of course, was necessary it sort of was a, uh, it became convenient because of the anxious Jewish relationship with land, with power, with their minority status. So here we have uh, another image that will sort of portray this in a different way. Uh, an early image by Chagall that came out in a book by a Soviet uh, Yiddish poet. And in this uh, slide, what do we see? Something called the shtetl is walking. It's from 1920. So before Chagall becomes totally sentimental, he's also publishing and doing art for very experimental modernist Yiddish publications. And here we have this whimsical superposition of a series of houses, right, uh, with human legs. And Chagall did this, thank you very much, did this illustration for a volume of avant-garde Yiddish poems, which are called Grief. And in the middle of that image, we have a tiny human figure popping out of a window with an accusing finger and saying in uh, Yiddish, Was darf ich sie die Leuterkeit die What's the use of all this clarity? So the image provides uh, the total context, right? The home is walking. It literally has legs. Home is portable because it's not tied to any particular space. It's not tied to any particular Place. We're going to skip over um, this next one. So uh, what I want to do is talk about the pre-war period, right? We, this, this talk is called Yiddishland's Then and Now. So we're in the then period. And when we think about the interwar period, that is the period between World War I and World War II, and it's important for us to remember, just for our historical sense, that on the eve of World War II, more Jews in the world spoke Yiddish than Jews had spoken any other Jewish language at any other point in Jewish history. That is, it was the most spoken language in Jewish history ever. So we have to like hold that in our minds for understanding the cultural space that it occupies. So in that interwar period, when we think of Yiddishland, I think Yiddishland in the, the smallest shorthand is Yiddishland is where there are Yiddish speakers, right? Where there are communities of Yiddish speakers speaking Yiddish and living their lives in Yiddish and bringing up children going to Yiddish schools and going to listen to lectures in academic Yiddish, or reading Yiddish newspapers, or listening to Yiddish radio, or going to the Yiddish theater, that is Yiddishland, whether or not the Jews have the political power to call that Yiddishland. It's a cultural space, and we might think of three of them in the interwar period. So the first one, of course, is in Poland, right? And when we think of Poland, we think of the largest mass of Jews, Yiddish-speaking Jews, of that period. We're talking about incredibly large numbers. Warsaw, uh, on the eve of World War II, uh, had more than 300,000 Jews. They were almost a third of the city's population. So we're talking about incredible resources of Yiddish speakers uh, throughout the Polish lands, and obviously not only in Poland, but in uh, former provinces of Galicia. We'll talk about the USSR uh, in a moment. But when we think of Poland as a Yiddish land, uh, we think of it in a number of ways. One, just by the sheer numbers of people. It makes it a Yiddish land. Two, the institutional nature of Yiddish. That is, it's a place where you have what I was just speaking about, the opportunity in certain cities to educate a child from cradle um, through high school in a Yiddish-speaking environment, a place where youth clubs, a place where hiking groups are all 
in Yiddish. So you have the institutionalization of Yiddish, you have the school system in Yiddish, you have the cultural life in Yiddish, whether it be Yiddish orchestras or Yiddish um, youth clubs that I was talking about, or Yiddish, Yiddish theater, Yiddish radio, and especially the Yiddish press, which is centered in Poland at the time. And of course, that also includes the political culture, that you have a very, very intense Yiddish life that's also tied to a politics of the moment. And the best example of this, I suppose, would have been the Bund at the time. We'll look at an image of that in a second, not yet. But the Bund, namely being the Bund being the political party that believes um, it's a workers' party, it's a socialist party, but it also believes in the rights of Jews as a people, as a cultural minority to their rights. So it's sort of, in, a, in a way, it's national, nationalist and socialist at one and the same time. Uh, and it also has the academic world. So here we have a picture of the YIVO, the Yiddish Scientific Institute, based in uh, the city of Vilna, which was really the capital, the unofficial capital of Yiddishland. Uh, and here we have really a, a, an institute for higher education, well, since the Jews weren't allowed to have their own universities, this is the closest they got, but an institute there to study the folkways, the language, the history, the culture of the Jews in situ, in the actual place where they were. And YIVO had a branch in New York, and after the destruction of Vilna and the destruction of YIVO, although many of its holdings uh, have been found, uh, that branch then moved to New York, and now the head branch in the world is the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research in New York, and they have a wonderful, for those of you who are interested and don't know about it, a wonderful website that has the YIVO Encyclopedia of the Jews of Eastern Europe, which is a great resource for people who are interested in Ashkenazi culture, Eastern European Jewish culture, and Yiddish culture. So if we uh, go to this next image, here's an image that perfectly portrays what I've been talking about, right? Wherever we live, that's our homeland. This was a Bund poster for voting. And who are they trying to get? The Jewish voter. But they're also competing against the Zionists, the Communists, the Polish People's Party, and uh, various different denominations of Zionism as well. So here they are making a particular point. Why vote for parties that see the future elsewhere when you can vote for a party that sees the Jewish, the Jewish future here and wants to advocate for our rights here? And I think this is one of the greatest um, sort of examples of a poster that speaks to this question of what Yiddishland is. The next Yiddishland world that we might want to think of, you know, here we just have some, some continued images here of what the Bund was actually doing. So we have uh, a newspaper, the Jung, uh, the Jugendwecker, the Young Worker, and here we have a rally uh, where you see here in the Poland how all the workers and all the people at the protest are carrying flags that speak in Yiddish to the politics of their moment. So if we then skip across the border, then we think of a different type of Yiddishland. We think of the Yiddishland that was created by the Soviet Union, right? Because very early on, we have to sometimes, I think, go back into history, skip over Cold War history, and go back to the very beginnings of how exciting it was for young Yiddish radicals to find themselves in a place where you have, for the first time in Jewish history, a superpower supporting Yiddish. Now, the Soviet Union supported Yiddish for its own political reasons. They wanted to get rid of Judaism as the identifier of the Jews. They were also especially uh, not interested in Zionism, as sort of they, they called it bourgeois nationalist. And by supporting a variety of Yiddish culture, they thought that they could make the Jews Soviet through supporting Yiddish culture. And one of those examples of that Yiddishland is there's a book called Stalin's Forgotten Homeland. So here we have a picture of this. Is the effort by Stalin, really picks up uh, in the early 30s, to create a homeland for the Jews, literally a Yiddishland for the Jews, in the Russian Far East. Bidibijan is on the border with China, uh, in the, in, really at the eastern edges. So you, one could say, well, Stalin was doing this for a very good reason. If you can get all the Jews of the Soviet Union to move as far away from Moscow and from Petersburg as you possibly can, you can get rid of effectively the Jews at the center of power of the empire. But you could also say that this is just one of those other examples in modern Jewish history of different ways that Jews tried to create a cultural landscape. That is, it's part of the broader conversation that we think about when we think about Zionism, right? That there were all these other failed attempts to create different types of Jewish homelands, including homelands here in the United States for the Jews that have various degrees of success and ultimately uh, failure. So we have here in this wonderful picture, right? This is actually still today. 
You can see in Birabijan, now there's no more Jews there. It didn't work. It was a failure. But when you get there, the train station and the welcome to this Soviet republic with no more Jews, former Soviet republic, still has the Yiddish on the signs. There's still a statue of Sholem Aleichem in the city. There's still a menorah in front of the train station. Not representing Jewishness as a religious sense, but sort of as an identifier of the Jews. And here we have a wonderful uh, poster, a magazine from a journal uh, at the time of what this, some of this might, what might have meant. If we go to this third pre-war Yiddish land, of course, we have to think of America, right? If Poland was the world of sort of Yiddish, the Jews are here and Yiddish is our, is our national language. And if the Soviet Union was Yiddish is the place where the Jews can be remade, remade anew, uh, the conversation is quite different by the time people come to America. And we're going over a great deal of social history very, very quickly. But America, in the minds of most immigrants, was the golden Medina, right? It was the golden homeland where you could come and not only live in freedom, but work your way up and have a life of not only political freedom, but economic prosperity. But when we think of America, America was also a massive site for the production of uh, Yiddish culture. Also, from the newspapers, it's hard to think about the fact that the Forwards at its peak, the Forward newspaper, had the, second, uh, had the highest circulation of any newspaper in a non-English language in the United States. I mean, that's just how big it was. We have to remember that other than Broadway itself, the Yiddish theater on Second Avenue was the second highest generating, in terms of theater goers, uh, theater. So we're talking about a massive world of Yiddish at this period, and I think uh, this is worthy of sort of um, just thinking about historically. So if that was Yiddish land, or the possibilities of Yiddish land then, let's think of the contemporary landscapes of Yiddish, because I want to come back especially to this idea of Yiddish land uh, then and now. And Yiddish, of course, is many things to many people. To some, it represents radicalism and progressive politics, to some, it's cosmopolitan. To some, it represents the possibilities of living a landless existence in a way that allows you to not have to deal with the messiness of um, political authority. To some, it's part of, of a symbolic system. To some, it's an integrative force. It holds different chapters of Jewish history together. Uh, to others, it's a reflection of betrayal of Jews who sort of willingly or unwillingly left behind their own languages, right? So it's important for us to remember today that although many, many, many Yiddish speakers and most of institutional Jewish life was murdered by Hitler and then betrayed by Stalin, when Stalin really um, executed the cream of the crop of the Soviet Yiddish-speaking intelligentsia, it was not murdered in the United States. The close to two million Yiddish-speaking Jews who came to the United States from 1881 until the passage of the Johnson Act, they left Yiddish willingly. They willingly assimilated, acculturated and assimilated, and did not, or could not, for a variety of reasons. It's not a blame game, it's just we're talking how this happens. Um, did not pass that down to their children or to their grandchildren. So to others, it's a sign of that betrayal, a sign of that sense of cultural loss. And of course, to others, it's a symbolic system in which you can inscribe your own desires for a Jewish world that perhaps doesn't exist for you. So for instance, if you're a young person nowadays who perhaps feels alienated from uh, institutional synagogue life, you don't feel comfortable in synagogues, either because you're not, your Jewish identity has nothing to do with God, or because you don't particularly feel like you can work your way through a prayer book, or because you find it boring, okay? So the synagogue life is not for you. Let's say you're a young Jew today who also has questions about um, Zionism, right? And you don't find Israel particularly appealing as an, an address uh, for your Jewish identity. Well, in some ways, Yiddish can fill, uh, for some Jews, a gap. It's not religious in their mind. I'm not saying it never was religious. It was, it was the language of traditional religious civilization, and it has now returned to that uh, again. But it, in their minds, it can, it, maybe it's not as religious, nor is it as tied to the politics of the moment. So you can inscribe, you can bring your own politics back into it. If you, if you can find a Yiddish history that was anarchist, and you can. If you can find a Yiddish history that was leftist, and you can. If you can find a Yiddish history that was progressive, if you, you can. If you can, provide, if you can find a Yiddish history that was humanist, you can. Then all of those things that perhaps you are today, progressive, humanists, 
leftist, liberal, you can then pour back into Yiddish and claim that as your contemporary Jewish space. So it's a way, it's a vessel for containing certain desires and certain possibilities. And there are often questions that I get as a scholar of Yiddish over whether there's a Yiddish Renaissance going on. You know, there are, and I would say a Renaissance might be too large a term, but I would say there's certainly a renewed and fascination with Yiddish and with the possibilities of what Yiddish could be. Um, there's a return to sort of the sense that the period of mourning for what happened to Eastern European Jewry is fading further and further away. Not that it still doesn't occupy a tremendous space, but it's moving further and further away. And there's a return to sort of recovering those lost cultural moments. And Yiddish becomes that important avenue uh, to doing that. So here we see, uh, in a way, this goes back to our first image of the phrase book for travelers. Because where does Yiddish exist today? Well, it exists in all these different spaces, and I want to chart some of them before us. So for some of us, it, it just exists in consumer culture, right? Yiddish exists as this fetish, as this atomized, right? It's not a spoken language that people understand, but they understand enough of individual words, many of them vulgar or many of them humorous, that it becomes, in, in absence of controlling the language itself, you control aspects of the language. And by signaling control over those aspects, even if they're, let's say, part of popular culture, vernacular culture, um, that way the, the, the symbol, the piece, comes to stand in for a whole. So one of the most interesting experiences that I have is I'll, I'll speak to audiences, or I'll certainly have students, who will say how much they love Yiddish. And if you ask them whether they know Yiddish, or whether they've studied Yiddish, or whether they speak Yiddish, they look at you like you're crazy. Right? So normally, if there was something that you really were interested in or that you loved, you would go and try to learn it. You would try to master it. But there's an assumption that by virtue of being born Jewish, one has this natural affinity with it, and there's no necessity necessarily to master it. So here, this Yiddish uh, magnetic poetry uh, that one can buy everywhere, you see examples of this, of the atomization of Yiddish, what others have called post-vernacular Yiddish. That's vernacular being a spoken language, post-vernacular, that is, after something is a spoken language. What then becomes of it? So here we have Yiddish perhaps as game, Yiddish as play, Yiddish as fetish. Uh, but of course Yiddish, all, and here's another example. I love this. So here's a young man wearing a shirt that says Yiddish. But when you actually sit back and pause and think about it, what does this mean? as a cultural object and as a cultural performance. How many times have you walked around Phoenix and seen someone with a shirt that says English? <laughs> or a shirt that says French? You might see a shirt that says Paris, France, or Phoenix, Arizona. But a shirt that just says English, just says Chinese, just says Japanese. So we have to ask, what is this doing? as a shirt that just says Yiddish, and of course, even ask more because it says Yiddish but written in olive base, in the Yiddish alphabet. So it can only be deciphered and read by others who know that alphabet. So what does it mean when someone wearing a shirt that's already symbolically coded wears that out into public spaces? What it means is that there's some type of communication going on between Yiddish readers and Yiddish wearers. Right? And this can happen on a shirt, but I know the, the Yiddish Book Center uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, sells bags that say schlep on them. Right. So think of that. Why? I mean, I'm not, I'm not criticizing. I'm saying it's a very interesting object. Bags are meant to carry things, right? To literally to schlep things. But why would you put the word carry on something meant to carry? Other... Identity thing. It's an identity thing, right? It, it sends a certain message to have that bag to others who are also doing their schlepping. And you, they, they know who you are, and you know who them is, and there's a, there's a sort of a secret language that Yiddish can somehow perform. So we have that there. Exactly. But of course, Yiddish also exists not on that level, but also on the level of institutional culture. And one of the most amazing institutions for that in, recent, in the recent decades is right across the river from me, 15 minutes uh, away, and that's the National Yiddish Book Center uh, that has collected uh, millions of Yiddish books, has scanned them, digitized them, making Yiddish one of the most digitized languages uh, in the world, and also recirculates them. 
and then offers courses uh, for college students in the summer to learn Yiddish and a variety of things. But when we think of this, look at this poster from the very beginnings of the Yiddish Book Center in, when they were trying to build their center, outwitting history. What does it mean when you're building a center to collect books that no one wants anymore? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. How can you simultaneously call that out outwitting history? In a way, it's because of history that you are in this position to begin with. So it's taking something that might be seen as a cultural loss and transforming it into a cultural opportunity. And here's a picture of the Yiddish Book Center near uh, my house. And uh, you'll notice that even architecturally, it's meant to conjure up the wooden synagogues of um, Poland, the Shtetlach of that world. This is a game that one of my students at the Book Center created a number of years ago. It's called Welcome to Yiddishland. And what's so interesting about this is how this student, 18, 19 year old, already puts certain assumptions about what Jewish history is into this game, whether or not it's correct. So you see over here, they, they make a lake. It's called Blood Libel Lake, right? So the, so the, but it's interesting to see what people bring to their understanding of what Jewish life was like. So you have Blood Libel Lake, Pogrom Forest, Assimilation City, um, the Straits of Emigration, uh, Holocaust Hill, now entering Yiddishland, please enjoy our imaginary shtetl, the truck that's used to collect the books, and uh, various other uh, border crossings, right? So moving from Yiddish to English, from past to present to future. I find this, even though it was done as a class assignment, fascinating for interrogating what Yiddishland um, can be. And there's other institutions as well. So for instance, in uh, Los Angeles, a colleague of mine, Robbie uh, Adler Pekarar, has his own institute called Yiddishkeit. Uh, this is where Yiddish lives, and it's very interesting the way he describes it as well. What is Yiddishkeit's mi mission? It's the premier Yiddish cultural and educational center in LA, dedicated to the study of Yiddish language, culture, and history, and to connecting generations old and new with its cultural heritage. And what is Yiddishkeit? Yiddishkeit is the Jewish way of life. How interesting is that, right? Yiddishkeit is the Jewish way of life. But I bet if you ask 10 Jews what the Jewish way of life was, none of them could agree. They, none of them would agree. So this idea, so it thrives, and no, notice how it uses liminality, in-betweenness, right? It thrives in the homes and shared spaces of Jews throughout history. We provide an evolving habitat where you can learn to speak Yiddish, learn about Ashkenazi culture, and discover new traditions from the vast history of the Jewish people. So this would be another example of um, the institutionalization of Yiddish nowadays, like what's going on right now. Of course, there's a huge Yiddish festival culture that goes on, whether that be the Krakow Jewish Festival, which is one of the preeminent major festivals in Krakow, Poland, every June, an amazing festival of Jewish music and performance, or um, Klez Canada, Rising Up, Uprising, where you literally get hundreds of people, if not thousands of people at these festivals going to listen to Klezmer music, listen to Yiddish lectures, listen to uh, Yiddish, re uh, Yiddish readings. So we have here in this uh, way of thinking about um, Yiddish also this collective experience in place of a kahila, in place of a synagogue, you have festivals or camps or overnight experiences that create that sense of community, and that community then becomes Yiddishland. It's its own imagined community that, become, that then becomes uh, realized. And here's a picture of the Krakow Jewish Festival and a poster for that festival. Um, Yiddish also exists, um, I would have to say, in spaces, in learned spaces, right? Sort of, I would talk about Yiddish summer programs. We'll see another picture of that uh, in a moment. You can, you can go, this is for the Steiner program at the Yiddish Book Center, but also um, an opportunity for people to open up the culture. This is their welcome page, Yiddish Book Center, click to open a culture. It's very interesting, right? Normally we think of a culture as something that is experienced in person. Here we have online the ability to click to open up a culture because now the culture is contained in the collection itself that then becomes revealed through different acts of um, inquiry and translation. 
Uh, where am I? I th I'm sure I'm here somewhere in this picture. Let's see. Let's see if we can find it. I'm not so sure. Oh, there I am. I think. It could be. I'm, so I'm somewhere there. So uh, in addition to the Yiddish Book Center, uh, where is Yiddishland? Yiddishland exists in the summers all over the world. There are a variety of different Yiddish summer programs where students can get credit. Some of them for credit, some of them not. They exist at the Yiddish Book Center itself here at the Naomi Pravakadar International Yiddish Summer Program at Tel Aviv University, which I normally uh, go to every summer. There's a picture of me down below at last year's closing ceremony. Uh, there's one, of course, at YIVO, one of the longest standing Yiddish language summer programs, and then they exist in other places. They used to, there used to be one in Oxford that moved to Vilna that now no longer exists, then it alternates between Paris. There's one in Paris, there's Warsaw, there's Berlin. So all of these temporary sites where you get enough people interested in immersing themselves in Yiddish become these micro-communities that we might call Yiddish communities. Um, before we get to this slide, I also want to talk about the acoustic culture of Yiddish. If Yiddish as a spoken language would be oral, we can't um, necessarily take away the relationship between the new klezmer revolution and its ties to Yiddish. Right? So there's all this idea that when one goes and listens to klezmer music, even if it's without words, it is a Yiddish experience. So the question is, how could something without words, without language, it's its own, music is its own language, necessarily be tied to Yiddish? And there are many shorthands for how that's possible. So Yiddish isn't only in all of these institutional spaces that I'm describing, but also in acoustic spaces, and also in what we might call popular culture spaces. But let's go back to that one, sorry. Uh, the new Yiddish also exists virtually, that I think is super uh, important. This is an amazing website for those of you who are interested in things Yiddish. It's called Ingeveb. It's done by the newest scholars in the world of Yiddish studies today. And it's an online journal of Yiddish that has to do, it includes text, translations, uh, ways of doing Yiddish pedagogy, book reviews, interviews, and just general questions about the Yiddish uh, world. And when we look at um, digital Yiddish, if you look at the next slide, there are other things that perhaps aren't um, at the level of, uh, let's say, academic culture. Uh, but this one's super interesting as well, Weibertich. This is done also by uh, a young a doctoral student. It's a podcast. Weibertich is sort of a play. It's a feminist Yiddish podcast. Uh, Weibertich meaning the language of, of, of wives, the language of women. But she's making it into a feminist con uh, podcast in, in, in an effort to encourage people for whom Yiddish isn't their native tongue, and perhaps people uh, who aren't even comfortably fluent in it, to actually speak what, with one another in Yiddish. And are all these wonderful sort of feminist, activist, uh, Yiddishist uh, interviews on this uh, website. Uh, Yiddish is also the space, I, I would say, for a new type of uh, Jewish politics. And it's not only a Jewish politics of the left, like I talked about earlier, it's also a Jewish politics of the right. And I think we have to remind ourselves that there's also, whether they know it or not, uh, an internecine battle on the Jewish cultural street for who owns Yiddish nowadays. Uh, for those who speak Yiddish, mainly the Hasidic community, for them it's completely inconceivable for people to ask the question over whether Yiddish is dead, because of course they're giving birth in Yiddish. They're having babies in Yiddish. They're living their lives in Yiddish. And for them, Yiddish has become in a way what it was at its very origins, a way to inoculate Jews from the influences of the outside world. At the other extreme of that, there is the world of, um, uh, the progressive world of Jewish culture today that sees Yiddish not as a way to inoculate Jews from the world, but as a way, as a, as a historical address and opportunity to engage Jews with the world. It is the key to Judaism as universal values. And a lot of that becomes, they're not necessarily talking to one another, but they're existing in different spheres of what Yiddish is today. And if we look at how this uh, exists in two different ways, we can see, on the one hand, this recent article about New York's Yiddish press is thriving. So even though most of the old-time Yiddish papers of the immigrant period might no longer be in circulation, there are certainly many Yiddish papers being produced in New York today, most of them, vast majority of them are Haredi ultra-Orthodox newspapers. So there is a Yiddish press, but because it's not the Yiddish press that, let's say, non-Haredi Jews think of, then they say that there's no Yiddish press. 
So it's how we want to think about what is Yiddish, who gets to own Yiddish, who gets to claim Yiddish. And then on the other side, we have people like the uh, musician Daniel Kahn. And some of you might have seen his cover to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, in which he does a Yiddish version. You can go home after if you write it down and listen to the Yiddish version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah by Daniel Kahn and his combination of sort of Yiddish music, but also um, progressive, even anarchist politics, is very, very contagious for a new demographic of young Jew. Now, before we end, because I wanted to make time uh, for, your for your questions, we have to remember that there's a lot of Yiddish uh, traces also in popular culture, whether it be film, television, or uh, text, literature. And some of those are in different places. So for instance, you might be familiar with the show Shtisel, about an ultra-Orthodox family uh, in, in Israel, right? What's most amazing about that show is that there's a huge component when the lead character is talking to his mother in Yiddish. And it was one of the earlier opportunities, the most recent opportunities, let's say, not the earliest, the most recent opportunities to in some way normalize Yiddish on uh, is mainstream Israeli television. Just the other day, I was on Netflix and I was looking for movies, and this movie came out, The Awakening of Moti Volkenbruch from Sweden. A Yiddish movie made in Sweden. Yiddish is one of the official minority languages of Sweden. The government in Sweden pays money for people to learn Yiddish. They have a whole number of, I know, it's incredible to think of. And they made this movie about, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not saying it's a great movie, and I, there's certainly uh, cultural stereotypes abound uh, in it, but uh, an interesting text just to look at Yiddish today, because we're looking at Yiddish land then and now. Some of you might be familiar with the show Yid Life Crisis, mm -hmm. which is a show, I see someone shaking it, you don't like the show? I know, I've never seen You've it. You've never seen it, so you can go back, it's a YouTube channel, Go, or, or you can actually go to Yiddishkeit uh, and look at Yid Life Crisis. Very, very interesting, made by two guys who grew up in Montreal and went to sort of a Hebrew Yiddish uh, high school and now are doing their whole shtick in Yiddish. And what does it mean for kids whose language is English to make a show in Yiddish? Even though the Yiddish needs to be reworked and they need help on pronunciation and they need help on the writing, why make a show in Yiddish? So it goes back to that question about the phrase book for tra travelers. It's not only because you can, but because by making that show in Yiddish, we're also doing something that might be particularly interesting or something uh, new. Or some of you might have seen the Coen Brothers' A Serious Man a number of years ago, in which you have you know, a 10 minute prologue entirely in Yiddish with no explanation on how it connects to the rest of the movie, other than the filmgoer's sort of sense of, now I have to figure out what this is. And it has to deal with a dibuk, right? So this is all in the realm of visual uh, culture. And maybe we'll end with contemporary Jewish fiction and the Yiddish trace in contemporary Jewish fiction. Look only in the last 15 years, and this is only a small smatter of interesting texts in which Yiddish doesn't only function in passing, but the books are actually about Yiddish, whether it be Dara Horn's The World to Come, which is all about a stolen Chagall painting uh, on a singles date in New York, which then takes people back to the world of Yiddish literature, to the world of Yiddish-speaking Chagall, to the world of the symbolist uh, writer Der Nister, or Songs for the Butcher's Daughter by Peter Manso, uh, a whole book about translation, about translating uh, the New Testament into Yiddish, to Michael Chabin's Yiddish Policeman's Union, to the more recent uh, Yiddish for Pirates, uh, yeah. published in Canada by Gary Barber. And there are you know tens and tens and tens more. So all of these things are quite interesting. And what I love about these texts is, if we look at, for instance, the example of, um, of uh, Songs for the Butcher's Daughter, it brings up another space, another question of where Yiddishland exists. Because what he's really interested in is the relationship between Yiddish and translation that that's really where Yiddishland exists. And one of the moments in the book that I'll read goes as follows. Translation, he writes, is an intimate act. So much is made of the sharing of fluids, of the pressing of bodies, as if chemistry or anatomy were the realm of the highest order of human exchange. But how is it not the sharing of language? Who but a writer, alone in a room, could impregnate the thoughts of so many? For a writer who has outlived his tongue, there is no other means of contact. Without a translator, who would unzip the world? Or the, sorry, who would unzip the words? Very important distinction. <laughs> who would unzip the words? Uh, and he writes, the Jewish future, like the Jewish past, can only be found in words. Not nations, not lands, 
Make words your homeland. Make them your lover, and I swear to you, you will never be homeless, and you will never be heartbroken. So I think with that, I'll end, and I'll leave it to your questions. All right, we have a lot of hands. Ma'am. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. It was all in Yiddish, and of course, what I left out was the unbelievable revival of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish on Broadway as we speak. Talk about something that's unex that, that fits in exactly with what we're talking about now. That Fiddler on the Roof was meant, was designed as a play in the 60s, written in English to conjure up a Yiddish-speaking world. It was never produced in Yiddish here. The fact that in 2018-19, not only has it moved from, from the Jewish Museum to off-Broadway to Broadway in Yiddish, is an incredibly interesting cultural moment. And we could look at not only that, but another contrast, Paula Vogel's Indecent. Some of you might have seen this on CBS, uh, on, on PBS. Indecent is an adaptation of a Yiddish play by Sholem Ash, God of Vengeance. It's all about um, banning theater. Uh, it's about a father who runs a brothel, about a daughter and his attempt to um, maintain her purity. It's about uh, same-sex love and desire. And Paula Vogel finds this Yiddish play and now writes a new American play about it that not only got rave reviews, but was so great that it made it onto PBS. You can go and look up uh, Indecent tonight. So there's all of these, what I'm really interested in is all of these spaces in the contemporary American Jewish world where without us even realizing it, or now especially very frontally, Yiddish is playing an increasingly prominent role at a time where in the past people might have wanted to get rid of Yiddish entirely and not even allowed it to be seen, let alone heard. So what does that mean, that transition? It's really one of the things that I, I hope you leave with and, and start noticing all these Yiddish moments or places or phenomena. So you had a question, sir. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my mother came from Romania. My, mother, my father came from Hungary. And the only language they really knew together was Yiddish. Uh -huh. And I grew up in a house where I heard both the attempted English and speaking Yiddish. Right. So I learned to understand. What's very frustrating is the fact that Yiddish, is, there's no vowels. And for those of us that had to start Hebrew school, six or seven years old, because we couldn't get up our mission. Uh, we didn't know how to, how to read the words, unless there were vowels there. So it's actually not true. Yiddish has vowels. I know Yiddish has vowels. Hebrew doesn't. Hebrew doesn't have vowels. Well, Hebrew makes you add the diacritics. Yiddish itself, in a sense, the letters are the vowels. And it's for instance, an ayin is always the e sound. So you don't need the vowel underneath, because an ayin is always an e. An aleph either has an o or an u that has you know a, a, another letter after it. Uh, a yud is always an e. So in fact, the the in terms of learning ability, Yiddish is a much more intuitive language once you actually know all of this. Let me let me just make sure I get more. Sure. Yeah. So um, two observations I'd like for you to um, talk about. Perhaps. Sure. Uh, when our ancestors, those who came in the migration before 1924, uh, came here, and they were primarily Yiddish speakers, uh, you know, our identity was formed by the fact that they didn't think of themselves as Russians or Ukrainians mm -hmm. or Lithuanians or anything like that. They were Jews. Okay, and so we grew up knowing that we were Jewish in America. Right. They weren't Russian speakers. They weren't Polish speakers. Well, many of them were. They but also they, knew those, right? But they, but but they, but primarily, what was what was spoken and, and forgotten in the homes was Yiddish, right? Okay. In later generations and later waves of immigration, both to Israel and to the U.S., for example, since since the late eighties, early early nineties, the Russian Jewish populations that have have, mm -hmm. have emigrated come with Russian as right. their native tongue. Right. And they tend to be less integrating, more kind of isolating and remaining within their Russian speaking or, for example, the Jews of Iran, their Persian speaking um, communities and separate themselves from, from the overall 
American or Israeli Jewish communities. I'm curious if you could talk about sort of the, the effect of integration and separation mm -hmm. based on the languages. Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I would say, I, I wouldn't necessarily see it as, 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 as um, segregating themselves or alienating themselves as much as a certain sense that these are communities with something to preserve. And that oftentimes cultural preser preservation necessitates a community. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that Persian Jews want to preserve a certain uh, aspect of Persian Jewish culture, uh, following the failed path of earlier models of American assimilation would ensure that, that within two or three generations there wouldn't be any Persian Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we could say that about other communities as well. And so well. That, that was really kind of a failure of the of our, of our ancestor generations. They were they were fleeing from well, the oppressive regime, and so they wanted to get all so, of that. So let, let, let's put it in a different way. Was it their failure? Fa failure would, would, would imply that they knew better, yeah. and they still chose the wrong path, right? So I would like to say that, in retrospect, we can always look at the consequences of certain historical choices without necessarily blaming the actors for those choices. Mm -hmm. So at the time, people were coming here looking for a better life, and America is a very seductive country, right? You promise that if you learn English, and if you assimilate into the dominant myths of American culture, then within a generation, you too could be treated and become American. And for many of them, you're quite right, fleeing from very repressive countries where Jewishness had to be hidden, um, it was no question that the opportunity to pass English on to children or grandchildren through public schooling that would allow them to be seen as real Americans was an incredibly seductive opportunity. And it really made American Jewry what it is today. It made American Jewry a community that sees itself proudly as highly American, that has been able within a very short period of time to offer incredible cultural resources to the United States to make incredible contributions, but of course, there's always a price for that. And the price for that is that something was lost in exchange for that bargain. But it's not something that I would argue is unrecoverable. It's unrecoverable in the state it was, but it doesn't mean that through energy and effort and learning and study, that a new chapter couldn't be written in the relationship between Yiddish and America. Yeah? In New York, the Abelis Island. Yeah. My family came early before the 1910s. And my uncle used to brag, we didn't have to go to Ellis Island, we came first class from Hungary. Um, but if you go to Ellis Island, it's all about teaching you the American life. Right. You go to the Skirball Museum in Los Angeles, it's all exhibits about becoming an American and assimilating into the American culture. Mm -hmm. And they taught classes on it. Now, right. You go to Lower East Side of Manhattan at that time period. It was Yiddish. You know, that was the merchants. They were they had their their own shtetl <laughs> in the Lower East Side. But um, yeah, so we were taught to assimilate. And right. You know, now you look at the Mexican heritage. Now now it's like, oh, you have to be bilingual. Well, so I think, so this is a really interesting example. What, what's interesting is that at the moment that we are at, although those same pressures still exist, there's still a, there, there is, of course, a nativist stream to American culture, I think that nowadays we're much more tolerant of, of, of what we might call hybridity. This idea that it's not that you have to give up one in exchange for the other, but, but you can maintain different um, possibilities that overlap one another. There's no reason necessarily you, you can you can you know be both an English speaker and a Yiddish speaker. That, that, that's possible. There are ways to combine these identities in ways that perhaps weren't available several generations ago. But I was taught, you know, and I still think um, that she was right that there's an inverse relationship between Jewish cultural uh, literacy and political freedom. That is, the freer a political unit is, the more likely the Jews are to abandon their own cultural resources and assimilate into that. And the less free it is, the more likely they are to circle the wagons, either because they're forced to, or because it's a matter of sort of collective dignity, and to maintain those languages. So you have this really interesting relationship between America being, in some ways, the land of greatest opportunity for Jews um, in the modern period, but it's also the place right now where Jews are the least culturally literate 
right? Young Jews can't really read Hebrew, they can't speak Hebrew, they can't speak any other Jewish languages, they can't make their way, for the most part, through a prayer book. Uh, in other places that perhaps have less freedom, the ability of people, or, or perhaps different types of, of, of multicultural relationships, there are ways for Jews to be far more literate. So if you go just across the border, the Jews of Mexico are far more literate in being able to be able to speak Hebrew than the Jews of the United States. The Jews of Montreal know, are, are, so, so, so there are different ways of thinking about how the American example specifically has been an amazing example of opportunity, but also that opportunity has, it has, it has a huge cost you know, um, aspect to it. And you know, nowadays, my job um, is not only to help young students recover these resources, but to provide them with different uh, language uh, for being able to think through this. So for me, it's incredible that in 2019, at small you know, liberal arts colleges, we can fill our classes teaching about Yiddish literature. Who would have thought that you know, this semester, our 25 students study Yiddish literature and translation. That's a lot of students who are interested in Yiddish literature in translation. I think it says something about the thirst for young people to want to, 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 want to read things that they know are there, but they have no access to. Are your students speaking Yiddish as well, or just reading it? For now, they're just reading it in translation. I think all these things are steps. But in every class, in every year, there are some who go on. So uh, one of my students went on from knowing no Yiddish to now being the director of the Oral History Project at the Yiddish Book Center. Oh, yeah. um, that's pretty good. I've had other students who've gone on uh, to get fellowships to learn Yiddish uh, abroad, uh, who work at the Yiddish Book Center. I had a student write an honors thesis last year uh, about um, a moment in Yiddish literary and political and, uh, history. I wrote a whole play that's really infused. Not only, it's not only about Yiddish worlds, but there's a lot of Yiddish in it. So I think that you, you provide them with the resources to, to, to find their own address, to find their way, and then you celebrate wherever that takes them. And some, some of them will end up in Yiddish language programs as well. Yeah, and then they Quick question. Of course, you don't know the exact number, but out of the 25 students that you have, is, are they observing Judaism? Observing Judaism? Yes. Well, I don't ask no, but what you would get. What I would know, I would yeah. say minimal. But I don't. I don't. I, don't, I, I mean, I, I think that the majority. So, so not all of them are Jewish, of course. Okay. Of those who are Jewish, they're probably the plurality. And of those who are that plurality, I would say the minority are observant Jews. But I hesitate, as a teacher, to pass judgment on. I don't. What What is observant? Do you mean observe Shabbat and Kashrut? No. Do you mean that think of themselves as Jews? Practicing Jews. Well, practicing in what way? I mean, they're they're in a Yiddish class, so to me, that's already. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would say I, it's hard for me to measure, because I think I, I try to meet them where they are rather than where, sort sort of setting a bar for, for for where they might, for where I might think they should be or ought to be. But yes, I think that they're at all different places. For some of them, it's their first time ever studying anything Jewish. Some of them come into the class and say, I'm, 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 I'm a recovering Jew, right? I went to Hebrew school as a kid. My parents never took it too seriously. I hated every minute of it. And then I did nothing uh, in high school. And now I'm a senior in college, and I realize I know nothing about Jewishness, and I heard that this was a cool class, so I'm here. That's great. If, that, if that's going to be their address, in a way, back to the Yiddish world, and by that I mean back to the Jewish world, I want them. And on the other hand, I have... Uh, students who come to me with varying degrees of religious observance, including students who are very observant, and students who've come from the ultra-Orthodox world who are no longer observant. So there's all types. They run the full, full game. Yeah? You didn't really talk about the origin. The origin of Yiddish. Yeah, so I'm happy to. So how old is Yiddish? Yiddish is not a young language. People think that it's a young language in comparison to Hebrew, which obviously has classical roots, it's young. But Yiddish is about a thousand years old. It's not an Eastern European language. It migrated with the Jews to Eastern Europe. But most linguists think that it developed in the Rhinelands. So it's a West Central European language. And if you look at Yiddish literature um, in what we would call the pre-modern period, the early modern period, most of the places where these books are published would not necessarily be the guesses of where most people today would think where Yiddish literature was published. When we think of Yiddish literature, we think of Warsaw, we think of Odessa, we think of uh, Vilna, right? We think of New York. 
Um, but in, in those days, the book prints have imprints from uh, Italy, from Prague, from Amsterdam. Uh, that is, they, these were the, the Yiddish speakers were essentially in Central Europe. And then for, for a variety of migrations, it moved Eastern, to Eastern Europe. And when Yiddish moved East, that's when it also became a Slavic language. So the Slavic element of Yiddish, which is huge, uh, is, is a little bit later as a language. But the reason people think it's a little bit younger is because, it's, uh, it, I'm not a linguist, but in terms of how we might describe it, we might think of it as a, all languages are open, but Yiddish is very, very flexible. It sort of takes in the cultures and the linguistic elements of the co-territorial populations among whom the Jews live. So if it's living in you know, a Ukrainian area, it's going to have more Ukrainianisms. If it's in a Polish area, it's going to have more Polish words. If it's going to be in Central Europe, it might have more French words, right? Uh, and Yiddish itself then becomes this way of thinking about Jewish movement, Jewish migration, how Jews uh, adapt to different cultural possibilities. The other element about Yiddish is it gets its name relatively late. The name that we now say Yiddish as referring to this specific language comes very, very late in the history of Yiddish, really 19th century. Even into the late 19th century, some people aren't calling it Yiddish. So the other names historically that are associated with Yiddish tell us something about it, whether that be Mamaloshim, right? So this assumption that it's the language of the home, the language of the domestic sphere, a language that then imprints it with femininity in some ways that it has to fight against in order to gain respectability. Or the language, sometimes it was known as Teich, the language of translation. But why do you need translation? You need translation if you can't understand sources that are in Hebrew or, in some cases, Aramaic. So you need to translate into Yiddish. So that becomes sort of a way of thinking about Yiddish like Mamaloshin as something that's less than a real language. Even major Yiddish writers like Shalom Aleichem were writing to other Yiddish writers and referring at the end of the 19th century to Yiddish as jargon, jargon. This is only at the beginning of the 20th century, really, that all of those names that always existed still exist, but people start to congeal around calling it Yiddish. So oftentimes the question will be, well, Yiddish isn't really a language, right? It's just a dialect, or it's just a jargon, or it's just a patois. No, it's a language. And in fact, in terms of languages, it's a fairly old language that goes back a thousand years. And we have textual evidence of Yiddish already in the 14th century. So that's pretty old. Man. So when I was in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I was jealous because all my friends went to Hebrew school. Right. But I went to work with Great. Hebrew school. And I wish now that I would have paid more attention. And so do I. <laughs> I. I agree. Now, so there are, there's, there's, a, there's a growing number of, the work with Gerbil still exists across the country, but there are also other institutions that are trying to do that work. For instance, there's a Yiddish farm, a farm in upstate New York that's an immersive Yiddish experience where you do farming in Yiddish. Fascinating experience. So, yeah, all those things are great. Well, I went to camp Kinderland. So, so the, that, that camp would have been it, yeah. So you say that uh, Yiddish have roots starting about a thousand years ago. Right. At that time, was Hebrew, the language of Hebrew, in existence at that time? So Hebrew existed, but remember by, by the medieval, by, by that period, a thousand years ago in Europe, Hebrew was no longer a vernacular. It was a language of prayer. It was a language of the Bible was the language of study, and to a certain extent it was the language of scholarship. The Hebrew and Aramaic would have been the language of scholarship, and the, language, the other languages would have been... Why did they make the jump from that? What was the reason that Yiddish mm -hmm. was started? Why Start, well, but, so Jew, why do Jews develop diasporic languages? So Yiddish isn't the only Jewish diasporic language, right? A, di a Jewish diasporic language meaning a language written in the Hebrew alphabet. So the Jews spoke a lot of languages, right? When Jews speak Arabic, the great Jewish communities that lived in the Arabic-speaking world, they produced a lot of Jewish culture in Arabic, but Arabic was not a Jewish language. Judeo-Arabic was. Judeo-Spanish, sometimes called Ladino, is a Jewish vernacular diasporic language. Judeo-Turkish, Judeo-Persian. Why do Jews develop languages of their own when they could just speak the language of those among whom they're living? Safety might be a good example. Protection. So you're right. If, German, if Yiddish was really a variety of German spoken at the time, 
with added Hebrew and Aramaic elements. Well, I go to the trouble of creating a new language when you could just speak German. Well, clearly there was a cultural reason for it, an inocularing reason, a reason to protect oneself, perhaps a reason to be understood within the group. Perhaps you need your own language because the Jewish ritual and festival and daily calendar is so sated with Jewish aspects that you need words and, and phrases to be able to understand that. So over time, these Jewish vernacular languages develop that are necessary for Jews to be able to conduct themselves, but are not necessary when they feel more integrated, right? So why was it that German Jewry in the 19th century and 20th century doesn't need Yiddish, a Germanic language, and just simply moves into German? Well, because they feel German. They're told that they're German. They're welcomed as German. You know, they're emancipated as German. So there's no need for Yiddish at that time in their minds. So, so this is how languages come and languages go. And there may be different moments in the Jewish future where new Jewish vernacular languages are necessary. But I see that I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting the eye. So I think, I think we need to end with that. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.